Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Greg Baer, the co-author of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, I'm talking with Olka Joshi Hansen, the Chief Program Officer of Grantmakers for Education and the author of The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. Olka, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Hi, Greg. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Now, Alka, you had a unique childhood. Born in New Jersey, but you spent your early years in Tanzania with extended family. You eventually moved back to the United States, but as a student, you've spent time all over the world, Botswana, India, Germany, and elsewhere. So what was it like to move back and forth in these very different places as a young person? And looking back, what stands out to you now? I didn't realize this until a few years ago when I came across the research, but I'm called a third culture kid, huh. um, which is when, as my parents did, they were raised in one culture, they immigrated to the U.S., and then their children kind of straddled those two cultures as well as, at some point, at least one other. I would say when I was young, I don't consciously remember it, which I think is important to kind of think about. Like, it simply was this idea of being in a place where the sun kind of feels different on your face or the rhythm of life is different. It made me more at ease with the idea that you go to a place and that place is what it is. And it might be very different from another place. Like we had servants in India and in Botswana because that was the culture, that was the economics of the situation. In today's parlance, like in the US, you might think, oh my God, that's horrible. But I think being there and living there allowed me to kind of see things as both and. You've put it in a way that just makes plain sense. And yet most of us are not third culture kids. So I'm curious, how did all of this exposure help shape your thinking today about education systems and what learning could or should be? You know, was it jarring to go from school in, say, Tanzania to a school in New Jersey? Yes and no. I think the biggest lesson I took away from those early experiences was that what it means to be educated and competent and capable looks really different. So it wasn't only about the schools, because in many ways, schools in Tanzania and Botswana and India looked a lot like school today because it was all a remnant of sort of colonial rule. But I think what it did do for me was open me up to the idea that like, you know, one, you learn from the experiences you have and not just in school. And, you know, when you go to different countries and different places, you have people who have different kinds of educational backgrounds. You know, the idea of college was not necessarily how people were educated, but you saw them competent and capable and doing things in different ways. And so I think it just expanded my understanding of where and how learning happens and what it means for people to grow in ways that allow them to contribute to their families and their communities. You've said elsewhere, as you've said here, that this global upbringing was in so many ways advantageous, helping you to develop the ability to bridge cultures and to build relationships. The downside, though, is that, as you've said, you felt like you essentially belonged nowhere. Can you tell us more about that tension for all kinds of good reasons? 
we often hear about the need to develop global sensibilities. But how might we do that without neglecting that so very basic human need to belong to some place? That is such a great question, and it's one that I'm in my mid forties now, and I feel like I've only become conscious of what it was that was missing for me and why. And when I say that, I kind of think about it, or I've come to think about it. I'm like, oh, that was actually early trauma to be moved from place to place and to leave my family and to come back to my family and leave the things that I knew behind. It is a gift. That I was given, I think it is one of my superpowers. Right, is this ability to kind of move across and see things very differently than people who haven't had that experience have. But this idea of belonging, you know, I often say it's interesting that I do the work that I do, that I study the kinds of education programs and schools that I do that have as their foundation the idea of relationship and of seeing human beings and their relationship to each other and to their communities as foundational, not a nice to have, not a thing that we add on because we want to make their education more appropriate for the 21st century, but make it foundational to the experience that young people have. When I look at the U.S. today, in many ways, I think we are a country that is struggling with a whole community of people that don't feel like they belong. That their identity is so fragile that the only thing they can do is attack those people or those ideas that feel like they threaten their sense of being. The biggest thing I would say is that we have to start when kids are young, helping them to understand like that you do belong. That you are cared for, that you are part of a community. We know that that's kind of the foundation you want to give a child, and if you do that, then when they're one or two, they'll all of a sudden leave you, right, to go out to the world because they know they can come back to this safe place. And so I think in our schools, in our families, in our communities, we've got to put more of an emphasis on creating the institutions, the experiences that allow people to know that they belong. Like one of the things I think we've done in America inadvertently is to undermine the institutions that used to do that. Whether it's kind of churches or religious or civic institutions, we've kind of deconstructed those at the same time that we've created a world where people do what people usually don't, which is travel a ton. And stay places for two or three years, but never set down roots. Like that is antithetical to who we are as human beings. So I think that makes it even more important that in the communities where we live and the spaces where we are, we privilege and sort of make most important this sense of relationship, community, and belonging. Because when people have that, then all of a sudden they can go out and explore and experience new things without it feeling like a threat. No matter what that place is. As you say, we want to know that we belong, that we're safe, and that we're loved. In fact, it was Fred Rogers who said that we all long to know that we're loved and capable of loving. But Alka, you know better than anyone else that these ideas, like belonging, have not historically been a priority for education in the United States or in Western culture generally. And in your book, The Future Smart, you write that our dominant worldview has roots in the Western scientific revolution. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that, and how are our school systems today a product of that 16th or 17th century thought, and why is it important for us to understand that and to reexamine that now? And it's interesting, right? Because it's a book called "The Future of Smart," but I spend the first part of it really inviting all of us to go back and to think about the values and assumptions that drive our education system today, which we often don't do, right? 
we all love to say, well, the factory model doesn't work. And it feels like we have tried to tinker with the visible trappings of the factory model. But, you know, where I go back to, to your point, is about 550 years ago to Western Europe. And I would say it's modern Western Europe, because before that time, right, human societies were fairly similar the world over. Human beings lived in kind of small tribes and groups. They were often sort of mobile, but they understood themselves to be connected to each other and to the world. And in Europe around that time, for lots of different reasons, not least of which was sort of trauma and a very challenging kind of period of famine, plague, economic and political instability, there was this desire and need to really try and understand the world and to be able to control the world in a new way. And so this metaphor of the world as a living, organic thing was displaced by the metaphor of the world as a machine. And so a machine, right, you can take it apart, you can look at the pieces, understand them, put them back together again, but then you understand it and you can manipulate it. And in many ways, the scientific revolution was this amazing period when human beings were able to sort of start to understand and manipulate the world in ways that allow you and I to be talking here, right? Or for us to overcome a global pandemic in probably the fastest period ever. And one of the things it did was kind of displace this idea of understanding ourselves as human beings in a context, in a place connected to each other and to the earth. And so our modern education system emerged out of this worldview that was about how do we create kind of economic, social, and political units. And the model of that, right, the factory model of school was, well, let's put these little beings that are empty into these places called schools, let's pour information into them and let's do it as efficiently as possible so that they come out ready to be the economic, social, and political units that we need. And in many ways, that's what our system still is. We've kind of softened the edges a little bit and, you know, we do a little bit of social and emotional learning or we, you know, talk about slightly different things. But really, we're still thinking about that, right? We see kids as things that we need to mold so that by the time they come out of school, they're college and career ready, right? They're ready to be these kind of units, as opposed to what I think communities around the world had always done, which was you see children as beings who are born with potential and that the work of communities and society is to hold them and to allow them to unfold and to sort of grow into who they are. That's a much more indigenous way of thinking about education and personhood and humanity. We need to decide, are we going to go back to this more indigenous way of thinking about what the purpose of education is? Or are we going to continue on this path of thinking about molding and shaping, along with all of the kind of like problematic things that happen inside of that? This is Greg Baer. I'm talking with Alka Joshi Hansen, the chief program officer of Grantmakers for Education and the author of The Future of SMART, how our education system needs to change to help all young people thrive. Alka, you've said this. Up until this moment, the safest path was to give your kid what worked for you. But today, if you put your kid on the path that the conventional system gave most of us, it's like walking down a sidewalk that's crumbling towards you. The world is changing, and what our children need to know and do in the world they will enter as young adults can't be learned within the mainstream of education. So what are those things that kids need to know and to do? And how are they different from what you and I experienced, what today's adults had to know and to do? 
So if you think about our current system as being really only about 250 years old, and you look at the way and the pace of change and technology, it was relatively flat, right? I mean, if you were born in 1900 and you became an adult in 1920, things changed, but they didn't change at the rate that children today are experiencing it. My children barely know what a camera is because <laughs> the only thing they know is a cell phone, right? That has this thing embedded in it, but they don't know what a camera is. The pace of change, I think, is the biggest differentiator between the world you and I grew up in and had to navigate as we entered adulthood and what children today are doing. So our kids cannot possibly know everything. And that's one of the things I think as an education system we have to grapple with is what is the bare amount? If you do community conversations with employers and parents and civic leaders, nobody says we need high SAT scores or GPAs. People say we need young people to know how to learn, to know who they are, that they belong, that they have a sense of identity that allows them to navigate a complex world without falling apart. They need to have discernment. How do you go out into the world where there's a lot of information that is just false and make decisions about what is good and what is bad? They need to understand ethics, I think, right? This idea of just because we can do something, should we? And I would say that these are things, you know, collaboration, communication, empathy. It's not just an idea you take into your brain and then do. So I think one of the biggest things our education system has to do is to open up and to say to young people, you're going to learn about life and you're going to learn about being a human being by being out in your communities, engaging with the problems and challenges and grappling with the complexity of that and understanding what it is to feel ambiguity and to navigate ambiguity and to meet people who are different and to understand how it is that you begin to sort of bridge those differences. And you need to do that from the time you're born through the time when you leave and become sort of an adult and part of that community as an adult. That to me is what our current system has no capacity to do. We keep trying to tack on apprenticeships or a project or this or that, but fundamentally, we're still driven by metrics and outcomes and systems that privilege the cognitive stuff of school as opposed to the lived experience of being a human, understanding that when you move to that place of just being a human, there's no way to standardize it. There's no way to make it easy. Like it's going to look different for every child in every community, and we've got to build systems that are flexible and adaptable and allow that to happen. So let's talk about those systems, those school systems, because in those systems are some amazing human beings we call teachers. And teachers tell us all the time, you know, I want to give my students those real world learning experiences that connect with their joy, that connect with their passions and interests, that are relevant to their lives amidst all of this social and technological change that they're experiencing. But our systems, as you know, make it hard to do that sort of thing. And you've just touched on it. There are tests to prepare for, there are standards to hit, and so on and so forth. So when you talk to teachers about changing the education system, what do they tell you? So I would answer that question at multiple levels, because I think you're right. We have educators who are human beings inside the system that are trying to do amazing things. And I think today, more than ever, we have to recognize that and honor that because our public system and our public educators are under attack from all sorts of different kind of directions. So I think the sphere of influence of an individual teacher who might be listening to this is how can you make some time in your class, in your week, in your semester 
to one, build relationships with young people, to really know them, to allow them to know each other. How can you ask them the question, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? And make a little bit of room for them to explore that. Maybe it's a genius hour every week where they get to do something that isn't on the standard curriculum. And then I think there is the systems level question, which is how do we have to change the systems fundamentally so that educators don't feel like they're fighting an uphill battle every single day to try and do what they know is good for kids. That's what I felt as a teacher, and I know it's what teachers today feel. And that is a different game. We cannot tinker with our current system. Our current system was birthed out of sets of assumptions and values that are fundamentally at odds with what you and I have talked about, which is a different system that centers humanity, that centers young people, their development, how learning happens, all of that. And I feel like the last 25 years have been a really well-intentioned experiment in trying to see if we could sort of tweak the system and create something different. And you can't. So I think part of what we have to do is really kind of carve out almost research and development space for people who are already doing this work to come together and to say, how do we have an individualized learning plan for every student? How do we count learning if it's not happening inside of a classroom? How do we think about educators as everyone, not just people who happen to have gone through a particular program? How do we do accountability in ways that aren't about test scores, right? How do we do college admissions in ways that aren't about GPAs and SAT scores? We need to make room inside the public system to be able to build new systems, new policies, and new ways of doing things that are very intentionally about supporting this different way of doing education. And that is a collective responsibility of communities and leaders and parents. So, Alka, this work is personal, right? You're a mom. I'm a dad. We want to prepare our kids for this uncertain tomorrow. You've just given me some questions of things for which I should be looking. But, you know, we live in this real world with real schools as they are now. So are there models of education that are showing promise and that might point to things I ought to be looking for? So the short answer is yes, there are. I tend to think of schools in kind of three buckets, right? I think of the conventional education system, which is your modern day factory model. I think of this big bucket in the middle, which is what most of us know, which is we take the factory model and we bolt on really cool things, right? Project-based learning or social-emotional curriculum or meditation or culturally responsive practice to make it better. And then there's this third bucket of schools that I think of as much more human-centered. So there are models that people will have heard of, Montessori, Steiner Waldorf, Big Picture Learning, a lot of alternative high schools. Many of these programs, and this is the sad part, live in the independent and private sector because inadvertently our public sector accountability systems and standards have made it very hard for them to exist. So I think as parents, right, if we have the resources and privilege, you know, one option is to try and find this in the independent and private sector. But I go back to my own childhood. I went to a public school in New Jersey. I think the biggest thing is how do we as parents help our children to orient and to think about their learning. Not about school, not about the game of school, but about learning. Every moment is a moment when you learn. You might learn about yourself, you might learn about something big, something small, but making that visible, right? By asking like, what did you learn? What are you curious about? What do you wanna know more about? And then enabling them to do that even outside of school, even inside of school, saying to your teachers, hey, like, can my child have an opportunity to Take this project in X direction. You care that they learn how to write. Does it matter whether they write about dinosaurs or baseball or history? 
So I think if we can orient ourselves to learning, model that for our children, and then help them think about it, what we're essentially doing is empowering them to walk through the world and even their education, whatever it looks like, wherever they are, and to kind of be agents of their learning as opposed to passive recipients of whatever the system gives them. And Alka, you've said that we need to stop asking, are you smart of ourselves or of our kids? And instead start asking, how are you smart? And that's a very Fred Rogers way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. He used to say that within each of us is something that only we can do. So what would asking that question lead us to do things differently? I think our modern culture is incredibly scarcity oriented. So even the question of, are you smart, implies that there's a yes or no to that, right? Some people are, some people aren't, as opposed to more of an abundance mindset, which is everyone has a constellation of skills and gifts that are important to the world and necessary to the world. And the question that education and life, I think, should be about are, what is that for me? So the question of how are you smart indicates first that you are, but that there's a journey there to take alone with other people in your community about exploring that constellation of your passions, your interests, your skills, your strengths to say, yeah, this is the way in which I'm smart. And I can also become smart in new ways, right? If I kind of work at it and choose to be that, which is a much more, I think, hopeful and realistic kind of journey. Because there's abundance of brilliance in every single one of our learners. Absolutely. Alka, how can people find out more about the brilliant work that you're doing? So the easiest way is probably to go to my website, which is ulka, U-L-C-C-A dot com. You can also check out edfunders.org, which is the organization I work with, where we're having conversations and bringing people on to podcasts and programming. But those are probably the two best ways. And then my book is available. It's called The Future of Smart. And it really is a synthesis of 25 years of thinking about these issues that I hope is a provocation for people to have different conversations. And before we go, just one last question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I think it's to look inwards and to take care of ourselves and to build the muscles of our own that allow us to see ourselves as capable, as curious, as wondrous. Because when we can do that and model that for our children, then I think we give them permission to do the same thing. So I think that inward journey and that inward work is where I would encourage people to start. And the good thing is that's absolutely in our sphere of influence. Many thanks to Alka Joshi Hansen, the author of The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.